All right. Well, welcome here. It is the day before All Saints Day, which is All Hallowed Eve, which got turned into some crazy dress-up thing. And so I was joking that today at church I'm dressed up as somebody who is uh, actively resisting all the COVID rules, so I'm not wearing a mask. But that's not the real me. That's just my persona until you give me candy. And um, But it was a dumb joke, so I shouldn't have said it. The dad joke is now out of the way. But I want to do something interesting today. The title of the message today is Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing, and I think we're going to transition out of the Above the Divide sermon series into something else. And this is on purpose. And so I want to read a scripture with you, and then I want to give some background to uh, why the message is what it is today. And hopefully we'll all end up in the same place together. So this is from the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, if you've read it recently, is one of the least organized letters in the New Testament. It's kind of this weird jambalaya of deep theology and high emotion that switches between joy and hurt all over again. And as I understand the background of this letter, the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was kind of like a, oh, I don't know, 21st century Western evangelical church. Lots of money, lots of excitement, lots of activity, lots of sin, lots of worldliness, lots of problems. And the Apostle Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians to try to help them sort it out. And then he visited them after that first letter, and he got into a huge fight with some people there. And it was so bad that he kind of left, even though he wasn't planning on it. And while he was gone, he wrote this other letter, which is sometimes called the painful letter, which we don't have, thank goodness. (laughs) We don't have the painful letter as part of our thing. Or some people kind of think we do, but I don't want to get sidetracked on that kind of stuff. And then after the painful letter, there's some repentance among the church. The church responds to the painful letter. And so this is actually the letter of Paul sorting through their repentance and a theology of being able to come back together. Now, in the meantime, the Apostle Paul is more personally vulnerable in this letter than he is in most other places, where he talks about what it's like for him to have been a radical, pharisaical Jew who was so zealous for the law that he was willing to kill Christians and then was radically saved by Jesus Christ appearing to him in a vision and then calling him to this life of serving the gospel where everywhere he went, he was promised to be treated badly by the Gentiles to try to win them to Jesus. And as part of the letter, he describes what regular life is like for him as an apostle of Christ as he's trying to reconcile people to God, to tell them about Jesus with the hope that they would believe in turn. And this is where this description of his life comes from. We're going to read this together, 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 2 and going through to verse 10. Paul says this, 
Behold, now is the favorable time. He's talking about coming to Jesus. This is the time. This is the time when anyone can come. This is the time when anybody who wants God can come and get God. Now is the time where God is just going to pour out his generosity and pour out his favor. All you need to do is come. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we, talking about himself and his apostolic team, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way and here comes the list by great endurance in afflictions hardships calamities beatings imprisonments riots labors sleepless night hunger and he shifts gears a little bit by purity knowledge patience kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, punished and yet not killed, and here's the key part for us at Calvary Chapel, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Would you pray with me? Father God, I think you're starting something at Calvary Chapel here. And I pray that you would help us together hear what the Spirit is saying and become the people you desire us to be. Father, I want to admit more than ever before the impossibility of mere words to accomplish what you desire for the church. I want to impress no one. I really hope that you will bless everyone and that you will grip hearts. You will cause us to see the unseen and be transformed for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're alive in these days. And these days need real Christians. And all God's people said, Amen. I don't usually share words from the front, but when I do, I'm going to go all in. This week, I got... I had the, I'm going to tell you a bit of a weird story, okay? And it's, it's not that impressive, so don't... Don't get your hopes up. It was just weird. I got a phone call from somebody on WhatsApp, and it was one of those numbers that doesn't look anything like from Canada, so I just brushed it off as telemarketer, right? One of those people that are just phoning. Now, after all this conversation happened, I would like to let you know that I got the most bizarre telemarketer uh, phone call ever. But have you noticed that they've, they've figured out how to make the phone numbers look like they're from around here, right? All the telemarketers are phoning from Blumenort or from Steinbach. They've got our numbers, and so you can't even trust your local area code anymore. But anyhow, I picked it up for the local area card, and they said, your package of drugs has been seized at the border. Press one to find out what will happen to you. And I was like, well... It was just pot, so I'm not going to get in that much trouble. So I pressed one, and just kidding, it was crack. No, just kidding, there was no drugs at the border. But I was just like, that's wild. And how many people are trying to ship drugs to themselves that this is actually like a viable way to try to trap people? What they want to do is get you to you panic, and then they phone and say, well, if you just give us your social insurance number, you can pay the fine, and then they've got you. 
Anyhow, that was the second phone call. But the first one was from mi amigo Diego from Mexico. And he had been woken up in the middle of the night and had gotten some pictures for me. And he said, the first picture, you were standing on stage. I was praying for you. And I was praying for you, just total deliverance from the fear of man. And then I prayed over you and prophesied over you that you were going to get dancing in your bones again. And then I touched your tongue that you would prophesy again. And then he said, then I got a different picture for you. And he's awake at three in the morning in Mexico. And he said, the second picture was of you. You're in this VW bug car doohickey and you're driving it and you're merging into one of these American super freeways, you know, where it's like 10 lanes across. And when you're merging in with one of those things, you need to step on the gas because you need to be speeding just to merge in, right? Anybody? I drove in California one time. Two times, two times we did. And it's like there were more cars on the highway than there were people in Manitoba in that one stretch from Half Moon Bay to the airport, right? It was just bizarre. But the point of the picture was like you need to be stepping on the gas because you can't merge going half speed or slow. Then you get that big long line of people who hate your guts because you stopped when you needed to merge in and it's going to be, you're never going to get in. And so I was really grateful he prayed for me. And the only reason I'm really sharing this, because usually, you know, encouragement words are there for me and I just do it, is because it was me at the front where the encouragements were coming from and because freedom from fear of man, profound joy expressing itself through even a willingness to dance and a resurgence of the, the obviousness of the Holy Spirit through me talking were all things that I had been waiting on the Lord about and asking him to get somebody to encourage me about it. And usually, even when I get an encouragement like that, I'm happy to sit on it. Like Usually you need to pray into these things, but because of the second half, of, I felt like there was this call to step on the gas now. Even though it, this may feel like the worst time to start talking about joy. I think that's the point of the second half. Like, Don't wait until you're right there by the highway to start talking about this stuff because you need to be working on it now. And I was listening to a podcast. All my best stuff comes from other people. Sorry. But that's the thing about being a preacher. Like, Every good thing you'll ever say was written at least 2,000 years ago. Amen. Novelty is not something we're meant to aspire to. But I was listening to Jenny Allen, I guess, and she was talking about a time where she had serious doubts in her life and she was really taken out by these doubts of faith. And after she was through it, she regretted that she hadn't been discipled into fighting her doubts better before the storm of doubt came in her life. And with all these things together, I, I, I believe God is wanting to encourage us that there is a future for us that includes real freedom from fear of man, which includes 
Fear of man taking away things from you. Fear of man when they're in government. Fear of man when you're called to do things that look unusual. The whole gambit. Anybody here ever want to be free of the fear of man? Okay, that's where we're going. And a a renewal of the joy of the Lord that is in your bones. Anybody want a renewal of the joy of the Lord that is in your bones? Okay, that's where we're going. And a renewal of being used by the Lord, especially in your speech, so that the kingdom of God is coming through your mouth. Anybody want that? Okay, that's where we're going. It feels like the worst time in the world to to be talking about this. But I think God would say, now is the time to step on the gas. Because later is too late. Okay? So can we do this in faith? So I want to lay some groundwork for this experience of the Christian life. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Wouldn't you like to be always rejoicing? Okay? That was Paul's normal. It's not my normal. I'm really immature in Christ. I can do sorrowful. I'm good at that. I'm actually really good at that. By character, by inclination, by habit, I'm good at sorrowful. Not, and sometimes I'm good at joyful. Sometimes. Yeah, it's okay. Especially when Timmy and I are both in a good mood at the same time. It's pretty awesome. We can really work off of each other. Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. I have not learned the secret to this yet. That's where I'm going. Do you want to come with? Amen. I believe it's true when other people say that the average Christian most likely doesn't realize we've been brainwashed. We live in a culture where we really do expect to feel good all the time. Right? And as Christ, like your average Canadian, your average American feels like if you could just get enough money, have the right friends, you've got the right feed, you subscribe to the right streaming stuff, you can feel good and happy all the time. Right? And then something comes along. It's usually called reality, or it's called the failure of idolatry, where you've binge watched everything and now you're bored. Or somebody comes onto your feed and they really disagree with you, or the wrong person gets elected again, or just once, or whatever. And the expectation of health and wealth and happiness is taken from us, we feel. And then we feel like we have the right to respond really badly. 
That's, especially now, that's the normal theology of the person on the line and the person on the street. I, I have access to perfect happiness and the only thing that wrecks this is somebody else and I need to get at them. As Christians, we can adopt that same expectation of comfort, ease, success, constant victory, peace, comfort, and trouble-free lifenessness. And now it's Jesus that we have all the expectation on to deliver that, and likely other Christians as well. True fact. And because I'm like that, okay, I'm not immune to those kinds of expectations, when the God-given, God-directed, God-blessed, God-predestined crosswalk of Christianity comes, when Jesus says, here's the cross I want to pick you up today, we can either get very sorrowful, very complaining, very grumpy, or very taken out. And I look at a list like this, and I go, I don't even begin to have the brain capacity to understand how some human being could write this letter. Paul is pushing towards the end of his description where he's saying to this church that he's in the midst of church strife with, and he says to them, my team and me are sorrowful all the time and yet always rejoicing. And the list of things that he's going through while he's feeling these feelings in Christ are unbelievable to me. Even just the beginning, great endurance is hard for me. To, to, to be okay two days in a row, haven't done it yet. Every morning for me, I feel like all my godliness disappears in the night. And I have to find it again every time the sun comes up. And I don't know where it's going because I have stayed awake all night sometimes. It's not even the sleep that does it. I don't know. And Paul has this progression. We try to show people how awesome Jesus is and how powerful the gospel is, and how worthy following Jesus is in this broken world, in this sinful world, and how worthwhile Jesus is even in the midst of opposition by great endurance. And sometimes that endurance involves a lot of pain, which makes it a, an affliction. And sometimes those afflictions heap up on each other, which turns it into a hardship. And sometimes those hardships are so crazy, they're completely out of control, which turns it into a calamity. And sometimes those calamities are so full of people hitting you, it's a beating. And sometimes those beatings incur in places you can't get away from them, and that's an imprisonment. And what's worse than an imprisonment is when it's a mob of people beating you up, and that's a riot. And in the midst of all of this, I have a job. 
And those jobs are so demanding that sometimes I have to work all night. And sometimes I've given away all my money so I'm not even eating while I'm doing that. I wouldn't last 15 minutes of Paul's life. Let alone pull off always rejoicing in the midst of the hardships. Amen? Can I get a little Canadian amen? Like with an extra A, it's not an A, it's an E-H-A. Can I get an amen? Well, that was very half-hearted. I'm still blessed. Then he switches to the kinds of commitments he has to make in, and maintain in the midst of the crud. Right? When the crud comes, your typical Canadian feels like crud is the excuse to no longer have godliness. In the midst of the trials, we have to maintain our purity. In the midst of the trials, we have to maintain truth-telling by showing our knowledge. In the midst of the trials, I have to stay patient and kind. In the midst of the trials, I need to stay filled up with the Holy Spirit. What is it that's wrong with my theology that I feel like I can only be full of the Spirit when I feel good? Where did that come from? With genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. And then you've got some good stuff in the middle here. Yeah, give me some power of God. Give me some weapons of righteousness in my right hand and my left hand. But then something happens here. He starts talking about reactions. Sometimes we, we do our best and we get honor. Hallelujah. But sometimes we get dishonor. Sometimes we're doing our best. And we, the result is slander. But sometimes it's praise. Sometimes we're treated as imposters. It's kind of what was going on in his church, that these other apostles came along who didn't look like hamburger because Paul was always getting beaten up all the time. And so he, he was kind of bent and broken. And um, his, his letter writing was a bit better than his preaching. And some super apostles came along, which were way more in, uh, uh, impressive. And so they started saying, Paul's not the real deal, so here he is being treated as an apostle, an imposter, even though he's true, treated like they don't know him, even though they do know him. So what gives with this life? Like, this, this, this guy had the life. He... he w- this is our hero. He, he wrote half the New Testament. This is our hero. This is our hero. This is our hero. And most of us probably would say, you couldn't pay me enough for a week of this. The riots. <laughs> maybe in a few weeks, maybe once I start dancing. We'll get a riot going on, and we'll have to figure out how to stay joyful during a riot. I don't know. Steinbeck's pretty low-key for riotous behavior. The problem with learning the secret of Christian joy. And this is what we're talking about, real Christian joy. This is what I want to learn, real Christian joy. The problem with real Christian joy is the Christ. That's the trick. That's the confusing part. That's the 
the boomerang effect where you throw something out and it comes back and hits you. That's the upside-downness. That's the inside-outness. It would be so easy to have Christian joy if that joy didn't need to come from Christ. Who was this man of contradictions? Anybody more powerful than the Lord Jesus who could speak to a corpse and say, Lazarus, come on out. Anybody more pathetically weak than Jesus who just stood there while they beat him on the head and beat him on the face and flogged his back till it was nothing but blood and held him down on a piece of wood and impaled him with spikes and held him up until he suffocated And at any moment, he could have said, Gabriel, all the angels of heaven would have killed the whole world for his glory. Unlimited power. Such disgusting weakness. Anybody more glorious? The Son of God in total perfection. He's so beautiful to behold that the Father God looks at his Son I know this is theological. Don't let me lose you. But the Father is the most happiest being you could ever imagine because he has this perfect son that he beholds in completeness at all times and the Father's heart is always going, I love my glorious son completely forever. There's nothing missing in God's experience of infinity because Jesus is there to look at all the time and he loves him with complete love forever. And their love was so huge and complete and overflowing that they had to make a creation so that a bunch of people could also look at Jesus forever. Do you know why you were made? You were made to see Jesus forever. And love him as much as the Father loves him. That's why you have eyes. So you can see Jesus. That's why you have ears. So you can hear Jesus. That's why you have a mouth. So you can taste things Jesus made and go, thank you, Jesus. This perfect son, yet scripture says, even though he was the son of God, he gave it all up just to become this little zygote that grew into a fetus, that grew into a baby and shared a womb with a placenta and then passed through a birth canal and was covered in afterbirth and had to get cleaned off with rough cloths and placed inside of a feeding trough and then grew up. And one day this perfect son was treated like an absolute murderer and hung on a cross to death under the curse of God. Guys, under the curse of God, the perfect son. Ah, I always cry when I talk about this stuff. The perfect son who the father loved forever. He cursed him. Treated him like a cursed criminal. The most blessed man who ever lived. The most cursed man who ever lived. Jesus Christ. The conundrum of history. Totally rich. Coming to this world as the king of Israel. And the king of the universe. Totally poor. He didn't even have a pillow most nights. This is Jesus, totally true and treated as an imposter, totally known, John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. He made everything. Everybody should have known him, but treated as unknown. 
He's totally killed, and yet he lives. He was totally punished for sin, but yet he doesn't die. Jesus was totally sorrowful his entire ministry, and yet was always rejoicing. He was totally poor, and yet he made all of us stinking rich in the grace of Christ. He totally lost everything and became nothing, and yet he totally gave us the right to possess everything. That's why Paul can have the joy, because he's just so close to Jesus in the mess. When Isaiah was prophesying, like, let me just like, like, just picture your Jesus in your mind that you think about when you're praying, or you think about when you're worshiping, when you think about when you define Jesus in your own heart. Is it a man of sorrows you come to? Just remember Isaiah 53 here. The conundrum of Jesus, which is the conundrum of the Christian life, which is the conundrum of Christian joy. That this is prophesying about the Messiah. And he says in 53, he says, Who has believed what has been heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's talking about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, who was despised and we esteemed him not. And he goes on from there, but like, even as I understand it, there were many rabbis who couldn't even figure out what to do with this passage. Like, who is this guy? Because it can't be the Messiah. And there's a part of us where it's like, maybe, you, maybe you've never felt like this, but maybe you have like, don't, don't let Jesus turn out to be sad. So I'm already sad. Don't let the Messiah be a man of sorrows. Who's going to cheer me up? But when God sent Jesus, well, he, he did have a lot of sorrows to carry which is ours. And he did have a lot of grief to bear, which is ours. And he did have a lot of punishment to endure because it was ours. And it was also a part of him just becoming our perfect Savior. What am I trying to even say this morning? One of the foundational things we need to learn is that we can walk in sorrow and there be nothing wrong. So that we can still rejoice in the Lord. You can walk feeling sorrow, and there might be absolutely nothing wrong with you. So you don't have to feel rejected by the joy of the Lord. You can be grieving over what's happening in your country, in your family, and even in your own heart. And you can turn to the face of God and Jesus and receive a nearly unlimited supply of real joy. And they can both be happening at the same time, and you can say, normal. I'm so sad. I am so happy. Paul, 
I am so broken, and yet I am bursting with praise in my God. Jesus. That's what he did. That was his life. That was his life for three years at least. Every single day, my people are rejecting me. And I have the best dad ever. And for the joy set before me, I will endure the cross, despising its shame, so that I can go and sit at the right hand of God. Amen? And that's us. That's us. That's us. That's us. That's us. Christian, like Robert Balfour, rejoice in your sorrows always. It's yours. It's yours. It's ours. And I need to start here because there's a lot more joy that doesn't ask permission coming our way. What do I mean by that? When Jesus was raised from the dead and the disciples were in that room hanging out, panicking, you remember that? And then he suddenly appears in their midst. Did he have to ask for permission from the walls to walk through them? No. Did he ask Paul's permission before he struck him blind and saved his life? No. Like he's God, he could do anything. And sometimes I think we can tell God when he can and can't give us his joy. Let's stop doing that. Okay? Jesus doesn't need to ask the government permission to give you joy. God bless him. He doesn't need to ask your body permission to give you joy. God bless it. He doesn't need to ask your circumstances permission to give you joy. He was raised from the dead so that he is, has authority over all things. He can give you joy. Amen? And it just probably won't look like what you're looking for sometimes because often we want that like worldly experience of no, no sorrow in our joy. And sometimes it is sorrowful yet always rejoicing and we say, thank you, Jesus. So I got a bunch of props here. Christians, we need, we need this walk, sorrowful yet always rejoicing because I think it's what's best for us. We'll start with this plant. Do you know how many plants are here? There's actually three. Here's one. Here's two. Here's three. There might even be four. Now this plant is really interesting. I have no idea what it is. Does anybody know what this is? Three, two, one. Okay, no. This plant is interesting for how many times I've killed it. Amen? Most of them are not watering them killings. So I didn't water it for a couple months. And this is the original plant here. We didn't water it, and it almost died, but we managed to go back. And then we were going on vacation for like two weeks, and so I filled this thing up with water, like fulfilled. It was so full of water that we got back from vacation, and it was still soaked. And so this thing kind of died. But then you know what happened? This thing started growing. And then I put this thing in my office where I can totally forget about it for months at end. 
And then you look at it and you're like, oh, this thing's so dry and you water it again. And these things almost die. They get all crispy and kind of gross. But because it almost died, then this one started growing. So you have as many plants as I've let this thing die. But then I water it again and another one of these shoot things comes out. And we're like that as Christians. We are most deeply transformed into the image of God when we feel like we're dying. And what God often will do is he'll let a profound sorrow into our life. And then he'll send a supernatural joy. And we're changed. How about this one? This is a challenge. My wife says I need more illustrations. So I asked Matt, Micah just to grab something when he was coming to church, and I would try to make an illustration out of it. We use these things as the goalposts for soccer in our field at our house. Okay, One here, one here. Joy and sorrow in, the fo- in following Jesus are kind of like goalposts to us. And our life needs to go through these two sides. Too much sorrow with not enough joy in Jesus, you get despair. Too much joy without the sorrow of being a real person in this really broken world, you're probably out of touch and definitely not growing. Sorrow, joy, joy, sorrow, We find Jesus in between these two things. That's our goal, to find the way through the poles of joy and sorrow. One more image. Why is a sorrowful joy and a joy-filled sorrow a blessing to us? I take these things for granted, but these are my glasses. I've worn them so long that they've permanently changed the shape of my nose. Does anybody else have that, where you've got the nose grooves here? Yeah, some people, tattoos are so easy. You get those things done in like an hour or two. I've been working on this thing for 22 years, maybe 24. This is real body modification. Eat your heart out. (laughs) I got these sweet lines above my ears here. That's permanent. That's permanent. I can't see you guys at all. And if I didn't know from wearing my glasses before, who was where. I've, maybe the fourth row, I can kind of guess. It's not great. But every morning, I have to put on my glasses in order to see the world. And the presence of sorrow in our lives compels us to look at our world through Jesus the presence of the kind of sorrow that Paul's talking about here, you have to look at your life through Jesus and through the joy of the Lord in order to live this life. And the presence of sorrow compels us. It's like, man, I'm blind. I can't see what's going on. I need Christ. I don't don't need 
the gift sometimes. I need Jesus. I need to see Jesus. I need to see the real Jesus. The real Jesus, dead for sin, raised for my justification, reigning in heaven. I need to see him, and I need to see through him, and now I can walk again. Amen? Three quick pictures. We're going to wrap up here. I'm going to invite the team up here. Don't think Andrew needs this chair. Andrew, do you need this chair back? Okay, good. So this is this is the start. And I'm going to do what I can to help provide resources for people. But here are three things on God's chopping block for Calvary Chapel. Real freedom from the fear of man. Real moving in what the Spirit wants to do through you. And I really think the linchpin for this is growing in an indestructible joy in Jesus Christ. Where he is the reason. The man Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. Because you see him and you love him, and you know him, and he's worth it, and he's worthy, and you've got to do this, and you're dancing again because of Jesus, because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Don't sing yet. I'm sorry. This is one of those Sundays. Don't do your habit right now. Jesus is here this morning to change your life. And if you want these things that are on the table, do something. Don't just sing. Like, Raise your hands. Tell them you want it. Come to the front. Tell a friend. Confess something. Do something. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And he wants to interact with you right now. And we have this wonderful opportunity to not go through the motion. Amen? We all know the, what the motion right? Stand, look around, feel hungry, think about the kids. Don't go through the motion. Go to Jesus. So, so the band's going to play. Get Jesus. Get Jesus right now. Get him. Get him in your hearts. Talk to him. Pray to him. Ask him. Plead with him. Do whatever it takes. Get Jesus right now.